For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're going to start out in the book of Daniel, uh, which is a great book. It's an exciting Old Testament book. Uh, it's compelling. It's rooted deeply in history. It's got bold examples of how to live your life for God in the middle of a hostile culture. It's got this compelling evidence of prophecy where God demonstrates that he is real by clearly uh, talking about his plan and how he wants to move through human history hundreds of years before those things actually happen. And then we stand on the side of some of those prophecies, being able to look back and say, they actually did happen exactly how God said they were going to. This is a book that's rooted in human history, right? There's a lot of things that happen in this book or that are prophesied in this book that you can look not just to the Bible to see whether or not that they were fulfilled, but you can look to the encyclopedia. You can look to, you know, extra biblical sources to see and confirm that what God said is what in fact happened. And it gives us encouragement that God is not only sovereign and not only that he communicates to us, but that he wants us to know him. That he has gone out of his way uh, throughout human history to make sure that we would know that he is real, that he is powerful, and that he wants us to know him. He is knowable in a personal relationship. And so as we get into this book, I think it's really important that we understand it in its historical context. Before we read Daniel 1, we kind of have to have a little bit of uh, understanding of history and the geography of the time of Daniel and what it means, right? And so this is just a map of the nation of Israel, uh, the way it would have looked around the time uh, of Daniel, how it was organized. Uh, this is a tiny, tiny place, even today. But back then, you know, it's hard for us to imagine that a place that has impacted human history so powerfully in so many ways could be so tiny. At its height, it was like 70 miles wide, okay? And at its uh, length was about 140 miles. Way, 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 way smaller than Ohio, okay? The, 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 the largest portion of the nation of Israel that it ever was, was tiny. You could walk across it in a few days. And so there was a lot going on here. And geographically, though, it was positioned in a place where it could influence the known world. Why would God select this land for these people, it's very clear as you read the Old Testament that God had a very specific place that he wanted the descendants of Abraham to be. And he had a very specific mission of what he wanted them to do. He wanted them to uh, record his word and share it with the whole world. And so where you're placed geographically would become an important uh, aspect of your ability to do that, especially when there's no phone, no satellites, no World Wide Web, no airplanes. Where would he position them? And where he positions them is in this place where it's like everybody in Africa who wants to go to Asia or Europe has to go through Israel. And everybody in Europe or Asia who wants to go to Africa has to go through Israel. And so to be at this center point of the geography of the known world at that time was incredibly strategic for getting their message out. It was also incredibly dangerous militarily. 
right? Because if everybody has to go through your country to fight everybody else, that puts you in kind of a bad spot. You know, one of the big, you know, all-time champ contenders of the ancient world, Egypt, is sitting there in Africa. And at the time of Daniel, you've got Assyria and Babylon contending with Egypt and with each other for world domination. Now, it wouldn't be long after that that you'd have Alexander the Great showing up in Greece. Of course, he wants to conquer the whole world. And we all know Rome and where their uh, aspirations lay. All roads would eventually lead to Rome, right? But everybody, no matter who they are, they have to go through the nation of Israel in order to get to where they want to go militarily, unless you want to march your desert of thousands of men through the Arabian Desert which no one wanted to do that. And so it geographically was centered at this place where it was uniquely able to influence the cultures, the major kingdoms around it, but it was also uniquely vulnerable to being conquered, which is why God, when he stepped in and and made his covenant with the people of Israel, he said, if you stick with me, If you follow my commandments and you don't worship other gods, I will protect you. But if you don't, if you betray me and you follow other gods, I will let you be conquered. And then I'll bring you back. And then I'll let you be conquered again. And then I'll bring you back. My promise to you, he says, will be fulfilled. He doesn't doesn't give up his promises. But there is a component to this where he needs them to understand that they are an important part of his mission to reach the world, and they need to be faithful to him in order to maintain that privileged position. And so Israel at the time of Daniel is, uh, is in this precarious position. The nation of Israel was really united. The people came in under, under Joshua. The conquests occurred. The time of the judges. Then God raised up Saul and David and Solomon, and they united the nation of Israel uh, around 1020 to about 930 B.C. They kind of enjoyed the height of their military and, and economic power, but it didn't last long. Idolatry, greed, all the usual human problems set in, and the kingdom became uh, divided. It became divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And that happened around 928 B.C. It didn't take, they only really enjoyed unity for about 100 years. And it wasn't that one kingdom was, was good and one kingdom was bad. They were human kingdoms, so they were just different grades of bad, right? <laughs> and, and the northern kingdom tended to be more rebellious, more uh, given over to, to foreign gods and idolatry and more influenced uh, negatively by the culture. Uh, but Judah had its problems as well. And so under Jeroboam I and Rehoboam, uh, these nations, the nations split. And the kingdom divided, 928 B.C. And we read things that God was very much aware of what was going on. God had predicted that this kind of thing would happen. And God describes over and over again in the Old Testament that this kind of thing was a problem. If we look at Psalm 78, 54 to 61, it writes, And he brought them to this holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. That it was God who made this land available to them for his purposes. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. 
For they provoked him to anger with their high places, meaning their, their idolatry places of worship. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. And when God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his, forsook his dwelling in Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. So they're saying as God, you know, God did as God promised when the people for generations, it wasn't like they just made a few mistakes. It was like for generations, God raised up prophets to say, this is, this is bad. This, you need the protection of the Lord. Look where you are. You got Egypt and Syria and all these people over here. You need to be faithful to God. They said no. They rejected him. They turned to wickedness. They turned to evil, idolatry, greed, murder, all of those things. And God said, I'm going to keep my end of the bargain that I made with you guys. I'm going to let your enemies come in. And so it took a while. You know, God warned. And what he does is he lets the northern kingdom go first. Assyrians come in, and around 722 B.C., they take out the northern kingdom. And you think if you were in Judah, you'd be like, huh, maybe we should change, right? (laughs) You think like as, as you're watching that, you're like, You know, God has given us this land. We couldn't get along, and so we're divided. And now God has let the northern kingdom of Israel is now Assyrian. And, you know, what do we do about that? This is interesting, too, because in the time of Jesus, what happened was the people who were of the northern kingdom, they intermingled, interbred with the Assyrian people and became known as the Samaritans, right? And so that's part of why there's so much animosity in the New Testament between the Jews of the South and the Samaritans is because as far as they're concerned, they're like half-breeds with their former conquerors. As far as the Samaritans are concerned, they're the chosen people and think that the people in the South are compromised. It goes all the way back to this kind of thing. Well, Assyria lasted for a while, and then they were conquered about 100 years later by the nation of Babylon. And so Babylon comes in in 612 BC, and now they are knocking on the door of the southern kingdom of Judah. And again, God speaks. The prophet Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of Daniel, speaks up and starts warning the people, look, this is really bad. We need to repent and turn back to the Lord. Jeremiah 22, three through nine. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit in the throne of David. You can tell what he's saying is he's saying, stop being murderous and selfish and greedy. And if you do this, O nation of Israel, if you do this, Judah, then there will still be a king descended of David sitting upon the throne, riding his chariots on horses and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, God says. And I love this when, well, I love it when God swears by himself. It's like God swears to God, right? God says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. I will let you fall. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, you are like Gilead to me, like a summit of Lebanon, yet surely I will make you a desert an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city. Why? Because they're on the road to Africa or they're on the road to Asia. 
right? And as the armies pass by what used to be Jerusalem, every man will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord dealt thusly with this great city? And they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. God says, I'm going to use you as a testimony. I want to use you to bring my light and love and my word to the world. But I will also use you as a parable, a terrible story of what happens when people betray and turn away from the good things of God. I will use you both ways, he says. But I want to use you to bring my prophets. Well, they didn't listen. And they were conquered. Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, and between 609 and 598 B.C., came in and they besieged the city. It was a terrible, it was a multi-year siege where they came in and eventually they won, they tore down the walls, they broke into the city, they tore down the temple of the Lord, plundered, and they scattered the people of Israel. Just as God promised he would allow. In 605, captives were taken from Jerusalem and brought to Babylon for assimilation. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the great rulers, one of the great uh, military and cultural thinkers of the ancient world. He wanted to be the ruler of the world, and he understood something that a lot of his contemporaries didn't really understand, which is that if you want to have a far-reaching arm of authority, you have to bring people in and bring them close, even people who are different from you, and you have to empower them to have a stake in what it is that you're trying to build. And so he has this idea that uh, Alexander the Great would later emulate, where he's like, let's take like the chosen sons of Israel, let's take their, the, 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 the youths of their nobles, and let's bring them to Babylon, and we will train them in our ways, and then we'll send them back to rule under us in Israel. And that was his plan. And so we arrive at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, and we have a very summarized statement of all these things. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. That's a nice way of saying he ransacked and destroyed the temple. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, So he's bringing the youths of Israel and the vessels of the temple into Babylon, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, discerning in knowledge, and who had ability to serve in the king's court. He's saying, bring me the beautiful people, the sharp people, the ones who are going to be charismatic and sharp and influencers, and bring them in because we want them to become a part of us. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And so Daniel and his buddies had to make the trek. He had to go around the Arabian desert, right, all the way back to Babylon to be reculturated under Babylonian religion, 
Babylonian culture, language, literature, so that they could be sent back to rule for Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to brainwash the best of the next generation of leaders in Israel. Get them young, get them while they're able to be influenced, train them in the Babylonian culture, and offer them a life of luxury, power, and privilege. These were not slaves. He's saying, let me send you back to be the ruler of your own people as long as what we're bringing to them is Babylonian. And this is what we see as we, I mean, as we study through this book. This is a major part of why we want to study this right now in our culture, in our time, where we are. It's how to love God while living in a hostile environment. When things are turning against God's ways and when man is turning against his fellow man and greed and injustice seem to be the prevalent ideologies of the day, of the culture that you're in, how do you interact with that as a follower of Jesus Christ? There are really three things that we can do, three choices that Daniel has and three choices that we have. We can be assimilated. We can be separated or we can be a light in the midst of darkness. And what do those things mean? What does it look like to be somebody who's living against your culture, but in love for the people of your culture? That is the question. Being assimilated, well, you just lose everything that makes you distinct. Just become like everybody else, right? Forget about what God says. Forget about the scriptures. Forget about the values that the God of the Bible teaches and just embrace all the values of your environment. Become like everyone else. Forsake the Bible. Forsake the teachings of, of Jesus Christ and, and of the prophets and just be like everybody else and don't stand out. Just give up that part of who you are and accept that things are different now. For Daniel and his friends, it would be to become as the Babylonians are. Let there be no difference between them and us. Maybe some sort of superficial difference. And yeah, my parents, uh, they believe some crazy stuff back in Israel. But me, I'm, I'm Babylonian, right? Be separate would be another choice. It's another way that people go when they're in this kind of situation. You cut yourself off from culture. Right? You say, we don't want to be influenced by the wicked Babylonians and their false gods and their, their cruel way. So we're going to be as far from them. Yes, they've captured us. They've conquered us. But what we'll do is we'll set up a little Jerusalem inside Babylon and we'll build high walls around it and we'll have a school that's just for our kids and we'll have our own music and our own food and we'll dress our own way and we'll only marry with each other. And we'll protect ourselves from the outside influences of the wicked culture of Babylon. We'll create a culture that's just for believers and we'll stop the outsiders from influencing us and our children. Sound like anybody else you know in America? And by doing that, by holding the outsiders on the outside, what you do is you disable yourself from being able to influence them as well, right? And the problem is with that approach is that God's call to us as followers of Jesus Christ is to go out and to be lights into the world, to bring the love of God into the dark places. And you can't wall yourself off and just lob love over the wall to the darkness. It won't land. You have to get out. 
into the injustice, into the brokenness, and bring the love of God into the lives of people who don't know him. But you're like, but that could influence me and tempt me and my children into doing very bad things. And the answer is, that's right. That's correct. That can happen. But what does it mean to be a light in the midst of darkness? That's a major part of the message of Daniel. That's why we want to study this book, really. Jeremiah, again, a contemporary of Daniel, a true prophet of the Lord, gives them insight for their time that I think is extremely poignant for us and ours. Look at what Jeremiah says. Now, remember, these these Babylonians are as wicked as anybody can be, right? They're, They're against God. They have come in, and they have captured and destroyed the temple of God, hauled off the gold and the implements of the temple, and uh, kidnapped the noble children to brainwash them into their own culture, right? This is an evil, wicked place, this Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, not a nice man at all, as we will see. He is a vicious man. But God has advice to the captives, those who were who were brought in, and he expresses it in Jeremiah 29, 4 through 10, and it's beautiful. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice first thing, God says, I have sent you there, right? It's not that I'm powerless, that I have uh, allowed you to be conquered, and I didn't want that to happen. No, this is all a part of my plan. I'm still sovereign, and I have allowed you to be captured because I have a plan for you in Babylon. And my advice, my command to you, my children in Babylon, is build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do, uh, multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, pray for Babylon. Seek the good of Babylon. Love the Babylonians. Be a light in the midst of darkness and and pray that they would prosper as you prosper. And do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name, and I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Anyone who rises up among you and tells you that we should rebel against Babylon and overthrow Nebuchadnezzar and pray for the destruction of these people, God says, that is not my way. And anyone who does that is not from me. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you. I am still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I made a promise to Abraham, and my promises will never fail. And I will bring you back and reestablish you. But for now, you have lessons to learn and lessons to teach the people of Babylon. Assimilation, separation, or illumination. Those are the choices. God chooses illumination. That's his way. 
That's what we want to really understand as we look through this. How to have good will, good will, and how to love and move into the lives of those who don't know God. How to pray for them and how to be a blessing for them. How to be like them everywhere you can. How to choose your battles and to know, you know, in these ways we can be assimilated and in these ways we can't. How we can move toward them and, and show them something that God wants them to see. How we can be distinctive where it counts, but how we can always be praying for those who don't know what we know, that God is love and that he is real and that he wants a relationship with all of us. How we can stand out from our culture, stand away from the in- internal conflict that would be happening and be able to influence them for good. I think that's so important, you know, as we've just been through such a crazy election cycle, you know, and you th- don't worry, I'm not going to talk about politics because <laughs> here's the thing that I want you guys to know and that I think we all need to understand is our country is more divided than it has ever been, certainly in my lifetime. And as Christians, we are not to choose sides in that battle. We are to choose God's side. And what that means is as our country begins to tear itself apart in different ways, that creates a backdrop where love and compassion and mercy and kindness and truth can shine that much more brightly. And if you let yourself get caught up in all the division that's happening, you will miss the opportunity to bring the greatness of God that can bring the healing that people so desperately need. People are looking for something to believe in, something that matters, something to put their hope in. And they're doing it by putting it into a world system that has no long-term answers for the real needs that they are expressing. But God can, and God does. And he wants to use us to move towards both sides, with his love. He says, when people who claim to be prophets tell you to be against Babylon, know that they are from God. When, you're, when they try to push you on one side or the other and tell you, you know, you need to be fighting against this evil and the sense of trying to destroy it, know that that is not God's way. God wants you to bless it. He wants you to pray for it. He wants you to live in it. He wants you to raise it up. And he wants you to be the example of the only way of life that really works, God's way. So how did Daniel and his friends do this? What were some of the things that we could look at? We could look real quickly through the rest of chapter one and see some pretty cool examples. It says, the king appointed them in verse five, a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. And he appointed that they should be educated three years, and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. And now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, young men who, are, who fit the description of what he was looking for. The name Daniel means God is my judge, right? The name Hananiah is Yahweh is gracious, Mishael who is what God is, and Azariah, Yahweh, will help. Their names were very much rooted and steeped in their culture and in their religion. 
and the God of the Bible, and they were, their names were declarations of God's greatness and God's goodness. And so the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel, he assigned the name Belshazzar, which means Bel, or the, the Babylonian god Marduk. It means Bel protect, protect his life, right? So he's taking their Jewish names that glorify Yahweh, and he's changing it into Babylonian names that glorify Babylonian gods. Shadrach uh, means commander of a coup, Hanah. Hananiah becomes Shadrach. Aku is another one of the Babylonian gods. And Meshach, who is what Aku is? You can see they just take the names that were the Jewish names and they kind of put a Babylonian spin on it. And that might make you really angry, right? Who wants to be renamed? Our names are something, right? You know, but this is, this is the name of our parents. It's a reflection of our culture. It's a reflection of our God and our people. How could they let them rename them and still be loyal to God? Azariah gets turned into Abednego, the servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. Should they fight this? Should they attack this? Should they refuse to answer to those names? They didn't fight that at all. There's nothing in the word of the Lord. There's nothing in the Bible that would say uh, it's against God's law to have your name changed, and, and you're going to have to pick your battles here. And while that might be a personal affront to our identity, that is really a surface thing as far as God is concerned. What he wants to do is get down to the heart. And if by calling me a Babylonian name gives me access to your heart, then so be it. Because this isn't about me, and it's not about my thoughts and my preferences. It's about an opportunity to serve the Lord and to let the Lord's love come through me into your life. Call me whatever you want. There'll be no fight from Daniel and his friends on that front. But Daniel made up his mind, it says in verse 8, that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. There were strict dietary laws that the word of the Lord said the Jewish people should follow. They weren't supposed to eat pork, for example. They weren't supposed to eat anything that had been sacrificed to an idol, and all the meat of Babylon had been sacrificed to its false gods. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Interesting. So he takes a stand here on God's word, but he doesn't do it in a rebellious way. He asks, and he reasons with his captors and asks permission, hey, is there a way that we can work together where I can... I can uh, Observe what you want me to observe, but I don't have to violate my conscience. It says, God granted favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, look, uh, I understand that you don't want to eat vegetables only because that's the only food that you think is clean, but I'm afraid of the king, Nebuchadnezzar. He's not a nice man. And I'm supposed to be taking care of you, and if you get all scrawny and, and vegan... Uh, You're not going to, I'm, he's going to blame me and think that you're not healthy. I've been appointed to look over your food and your drink, and I'm worried about how that will reflect on me. For if he should see your faces looking more haggard than the youths of your own age, then he would make me forfeit my head. This could cost me my life if you start looking too skinny. And Daniel says to the overseer, the commander of the officials, he says, please, just give me 10 days. Let us have 10 days 
where we're given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then you can judge. Look at our appearance and in, in, in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And if we look any different from them, then we'll talk about changing it. But if we eat only vegetables and we look the same, then let us just keep what is important to us and not violate our conscience before the Lord. So he's firm in his beliefs, but he is also sensitive to the concern of others. He's reasonable. He's rational. Right? Work with me here. And let's see what God does with this. And so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better. And they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Turns out, being vegan, not so bad. <laughs> and so the point is, is they took this stand and God blessed it. So the overseer continued to, with it, continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. And these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Every branch of literature and wisdom in what context? Babylon, the Chaldeans, studying and getting to know the culture, the writings, the poetry, the literature, the philosophy of their captors. Being a student of culture and others' beliefs. Yes, get right in there and know and don't be afraid to understand what other people believe, what other people argue, and what they think. Know those arguments better than they do. Understand it, because at the end of the day, God is the God of truth. And he doesn't fear that his truth will be overpowered by some other truth. He claims that he has cornered the market on truth. He is truth. And so as you study other things, don't be afraid. Because ultimately, the pursuit of the God of the Bible is the pursuit of truth. And if there is some truth that would violate his understanding and who he is, then he is not God. He is not who he has said that he was. So it is not dangerous to study other philosophies and other beliefs and even to master them. Because we should be advocates for truth. And what we'll find is that other religions and other teachings contain truths in them because that's why they have power. That the truth of God will be found. You know, very few religions argue against love. They wouldn't last very long if they did, would they? Love is terrible. We should reject love, right? Everybody thinks love is good. Why? Because love is good. There are truths there. But we also have to be shrewd and understand where the contradictions are and figure out what those mean because contradictions are where we find the differences and where we have to make choices about what we believe truth to be. It says Daniel understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then uh, at the end of his days, in which he had, at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The big day, three years in, they've been studying. Now, now you're going to go before the king. And this is a guy who can kill you like that. I mean, if he wants you dead, you're dead, right? He's not impressed with your knowledge. Uh, you know, there's no hope for you. 
And the king talked with them, and out of all of them, not one was found better than Daniel or Hananiah or Mishael and Azariah. The king questioned them about their, their learning, about their study. He wanted to test them to see if they were qualified to represent him, if they were sharp. And he was most deeply impressed with those boys who had dedicated themselves to that study. And they entered into his service, meaning they submitted to the secular authority wherever possible. We will serve you, king. But as we serve you, we will be loyal to God and we will be trying to show you, O king, how great God is as we work for you. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. They were better than anyone else at what they did. And their support and the work that they offered Nebuchadnezzar. As we study through this book, I want you to watch Nebuchadnezzar very closely. Because what's so interesting is what you will see is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to get more and more disgruntled with the religion of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. And he's going to get more and more hard-hearted about his own culture. And he's going to start asking really important questions about what truth is. And the God of the Bible is going to respond in his life in a way that is utterly shocking. And this is the beginning. Why? does Nebuchadnezzar's heart begin to change because of this? Because four young men decided to be lights in the midst of darkness, decided to be loyal to God, but work to obey the commands of God in Jeremiah and to be a blessing in their wicked culture. They excelled at what they did. They pursued excellence and they proved the greatness of God while not being assimilated and defiling themselves and becoming like their culture. How is our situation similar? It's similar in so many ways. We, we are in a time of great turmoil. We're deeply immersed in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to God. And there are those who are saying, oh, yeah, let's ring the bells and let's you know, talk about how persecuted Christians are and let's defend... And, you know, and argue about the, the minutia and let's build our walls higher and let's separate ourselves more. But that's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to move out into the culture with wisdom and intelligence and savvy and grace to move towards people who don't know God. As the conflict increases, we are called to bring unity and peace our culture is going to tell you that you should only give God a small part of your life if you give any. Church on Sunday morning for an hour at the most if you have to, but that even that is a little bit gross. Certainly don't get into your Bible every day and pray every day. Certainly don't spend time going to Bible studies. Spend, certainly don't uh, think that you need to share your faith with those who don't know or believe what you believe. It's going to tell you that you know, you're judgmental, that you're self-righteous, that you're, you're narrow, you're simple, you're stupid for believing that the God of the Bible is real. We live in a culture where that is happening more and more. And the answer is not to become militant 
as Christians. It's to become lovers as followers of Jesus Christ. Our culture is going to tell you and is telling you and has been telling you from the beginning only money is really worth your devotion. That is the God, the idol that you should worship. It is the only God that will deliver on its promises. But you can know and be confident that that is not true, that people with lots of money are no more fulfilled and no more happy than anyone else. Sex, divorce, greed, selfishness, spiritual mediocrity. That is the word of our day. It is lukewarm, something that, can, that, that uh, your faith can have its place, but it cannot affect or challenge the real values of this world. And the God of the Bible says something totally different, that your spiritual life is the most important aspect of your life, and it will improve every other aspect of your life. Our culture is increasingly divided. Red states and blue states, race issues, economic divides, liberal or conservative, all of those things are headed in a direction where they are becoming more and more divided. What will we do? What will you do? Will you be assimilated? Will you be separated? Or will you illuminate Will you become a shining light against the background of darkness that is only growing more dim? Will you be like Daniel? Will you study this with me over the next 10 weeks and let God speak to us about how and why we should be lights in the midst of darkness? We need to make bold moves. I think uh, what I'll do is I'll just draw the line there. God, thanks for this time. Thanks for this beginning. Um, just pray that you'll, you'll take us at, at this starting place and continue to move us toward um, better and better uh, obedience to you, uh, love and mercy and peace in our lives, and help us to hone and share our witness, God. We pray for anyone here this morning that doesn't know you. We just ask, God, that they'll hear you knocking on the door of their heart, that they'll have a sense of the reality of who you are and the things that we're talking about here. And yeah, we're, we're talking about stuff that's different from what our culture talks about, but um, that stuff is from you and it matters. And we pray that, that they will encounter you here this morning, God, as they spend time with us. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.